This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a weekly curated podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, a professor of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. We've all recently been experiencing the intense heat and humidity. And did you know that this past July was one of the hottest months on record? Exposure to heat poses a major threat to high-risk populations by substantially contributing to increased morbidity and mortality. Our podcast guest today is tackling the most common heat-related conditions with Dr. Neha Rocker, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic at Rochester. Welcome to the show, Neha. Thank you, Dr. Kakar. I'm so excited to speak with you and your listenership about heat. So Neha, you work in the ER. Have you been seeing a change in terms of the patients coming in with these heat-related illnesses over the last few months? Oh, yes, for sure. Emergency rooms around the country are busy seeing patients from the whole spectrum of disorders that arise from heat, from rashes all the way up to heat stroke and the whole gamut in between. And then, you know, because everybody's out because it's so warm, as you know, we're seeing a lot more trauma as well. You're absolutely right in terms of the trauma, I think. Why do you think that is? I think people are just out exploring what they can do outside. Now, you mentioned some terms there, heat stroke, heat exhaustion, heat cramps. We also know about sunburn. Can you sort of differentiate the the difference between them? Sure. So when we think of heat illness, we sort of think of them as mild heat illnesses, moderate and severe. And so if we start with the milder ones, the first one you mentioned, heat cramps or muscle cramps, these are really just painful cramps that's due to intense or prolonged activity. It usually involves the abdomen or the lower limbs, and it responds really well to just stretching or gentle massage and fluid replacement. And then as you think about other mild diseases, the other one that comes to mind is heat rash. And this is due to clogged pores on the skin, and it causes these small erythematous papules or pustules And it's typically on on the skin actually that's underneath clothing. The treatment for that is just moving the patient to a cooler environment and removing some of the clothing and allowing the skin to just dry. And then the typically the rash just goes away. In some cases, people will need like some exfoliant in the shower just to exfoliate over the rash. And so you unclog the pores. And then moving along the spectrum, we think about moderate forms of heat illness. And that's due to prolonged exposure, you know? And so one of the things that we're seeing a lot of is heat syncope. So people are standing up outside or working in their garden or just doing whatever. And you get the venodilation, you get pooling of the blood in the lower extremities, and this causes syncope. And so as you would well expect, this is pretty easily treated by just having the person recline and putting their legs up and allow for appropriate blood return You'll also see this in geriatric patients. They're actually a little bit more prone to this, often because of the medications they're on. So after they recover from their syncopal episode, something to consider is to give them some fluids orally and sometimes IV and maybe replacing some of the salts. Typically, this will resolve in about 15 or 20 minutes just and they return back to normal and everything is fine. The challenge, though, is, and the reason we're seeing it is it's important to differentiate between heat syncope and cardiogenic syncope, right? And so that becomes a little bit of the challenge. And then you mentioned heat exhaustion, and that's also under the moderate category. So heat exhaustion is something that we have all had, being outside, like weeding my garden for a couple hours, 
you start feeling weak and headaches and just sort of crabby and people get nauseous or they start vomiting or they have dizziness and your muscles hurt. And so this is heat exhaustion. And this we're seeing a lot of. So this is when somebody just typically doesn't hydrate adequately. And the treatment for this is, again, putting them in a cooler environment, replacing fluids, replacing electrolyte losses, like with sports drinks. Or if they're in the emergency department, we replace them with IV fluids. The things to be aware of, though, are people can have some mild liver dysfunction, they can have acute renal failure, and they can have rhabdo, rhabdomyolysis. And so these are the things that we investigate for in the emergency department. The most severe heat illness would be heat stroke. And so that is the one where it's classically defined as a temperature over 40.5, a core temperature greater than 40, 40.5 degrees Celsius, an alteration in mental status, and then the cessation of sweating. But in reality, heat stroke is any alteration in mental status, right? You don't necessarily have to hit that temperature threshold. And I find that the, that the defining characteristic of cessation of, swe of sweating, I find that actually really hard because they've been sweating up to that point. So if you were to touch their skin, they're wet. So it's hard to know if they've stopped sweating. And again, it's not important. It's the most important thing is that they have an alteration in mental status. And that could mean anything, right? That could be, I'm just confused or I've lost consciousness or I'm seizing, but it's any kind of alteration in mental status. And this is the true emergency. This is, you know, needs to come to the emergency department immediately. They need to be cooled as quickly as possible. And for athletes, you can imagine playing on a field for, you know, playing a sport on a field is a big risk factor. And so, we recommend having a tub on the sideline so patients can be dunked because that's the cool, that's the quickest way to cool somebody. And so that sort of is the spectrum of heat illnesses. Now, Neha, you uh, eloquently described that spectrum. And I'm just thinking about people outside. So, for example, as you know, in Minnesota, we're in the road repair season. So yeah. you'd see many people outside for hours and end in construction. You also talk about athletes. So these are populations at risk. What should they be doing uh, on a daily basis, especially, you know, to avoid being dunked, as you said, in that cold bath, going out through the day, what should they be doing to keep them out of this risk? So I think like most things, prevention is key. It plays a big role in reducing the rate of any of these heat related problems. So, of course, maintaining adequate hydration. And we have rules around that. Wearing loose and light colored clothing when you're going outside. Try to avoid the hottest hours of the day if you can. Like if you're working outside, that's one thing. But if you were just going to go outside and work on the lawn, try to do it in the cooler parts of the day. And then for those who have access or for those who don't have access to air conditioning, perhaps going to like the public library or the mall and spending a, the hottest hours of the day there is kind of nice to stay cool. When people are working outside, like you mentioned that population, just scheduling good rest breaks staying hydrated. And the general rule of thumb is to drink about eight ounces of water for every 15 or 20 minutes that you're outside. So that's quite a bit of fluid replacement. And if you're going to be outside for hours on end, for example, like an athlete or somebody who's working outside, after about two hours, it's time to at least start thinking about replacing your electrolytes and drinking things like sports drinks, which 
don't have it don't have a ton of salt but they have some to help replace what you're losing by sweat you mentioned athletes and, I, and i'm thinking about the children who are on summer holidays right now and they're running around they're playing outside are you more or less prone to these heat related illnesses the younger you are compared to the older you are yeah for sure so the people at highest risk for these heat illnesses are definitely the older part of our population the elderly and the youngest part of our population and it's because they have altered they don't they have alterations in their thirst their ability to sense thirst young children are reliant on other people to give them fluids and so they are also more prone for heat illnesses and there's medications that will influence your ability to dissipate heat for example anticholinergics or beta blockers or diuretics so there's a whole population of people that have risk factors and then if you think about there are diseases like Sjogren's where you don't sweat or you have a lowered ability to sweat. And so those patients are also at risk for heat illnesses. One thing I wanted to touch upon is the type of heat. So for example, there's dry heat, such as in the Southwest of the country or where we are, it's more humid. Does that play uh, any role in the development of these heat related illnesses? Yes, you're right. So much of the country is experiencing record temperatures. I think Arizona broke their temperature I set a record every day this month. And we know we joke about, you know, dry heat versus humid heat, but there actually is some basis for that. And that is when you have humid heat, you can't evaporate your sweat as readily as you can when it's drier out. And sweating is one of our most efficient ways of just of cooling our bodies. And so if you take that away because you're in this hot, humid heat and you're not sweating as much, you're actually more at risk for succumbing to some of these heat-related illnesses. You mentioned a lot about hydration, and I wanted to touch upon this because I think this is important. And typically, we just think about drinking water, cold water, but you also mentioned sports drinks. So what are the differences between the two, and can you overdo it, for example, drinking too much water during the day and not having any of these electrolyte-replacing drinks? So like I said, there is a rule of thumb that if you're outside trying to hydrate you know, about eight ounces every 15 or 20 minutes is a great thing to do. But you'll see people overhydrate and drink too much free water, which can affect your electrolyte status. So yeah, we do recommend sports drinks, or if you don't have access to that, eating some salty snacks like Fritos or something else with an adequate amount of salt, just to help replace those electrolyte balances, especially if you're outside for a long time. The thing to not fall into is Caffeinated drinks will dehydrate you and sugary drinks will also. So those try to stay away from those. And then of course, alcohol, right? That's just going to impair your ability to sense the fact that you're thirsty and it's not actually an adequate replacement. So we don't really recommend switching to alcohol at a certain point. Well, I think that's a really important point you mentioned, Neha, especially the alcohol. It's in the summer. A lot of people here, as you know, are on the lakes on their boats, mm -hmm. and they may have an alcoholic beverage. So apart from the impairment angle to alcohol, you're saying that it can also have a detrimental effect in causing these heat-related illnesses as well. Right. You're not sensing your thirst. You're, it's also a diuretic. And so you're losing your ability to protect yourself in multiple ways. Neha, anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't quite add? Because, I mean, you were so thorough and you've answered all of those questions very well. Is there anything else that you wanted to do? Maybe wrapping it up some sort of 
top tips of staying safe? You sort of mentioned that throughout, but just maybe in summary. So I think to summarize, you know, it's really wonderful to be outside in the heat. We don't get a lot of it here in Minnesota. So it's hard not to take advantage, but there's a way to do it safely, to stay hydrated, to dress appropriately, to be aware of your surroundings, to try to limit what, when you go outside and limit how long you spend during the hottest parts of the day and seek shade appropriately. If you, if you are a patient who is on diuretics or some of these classes of medications, or if you're a physician who prescribes these, it's good to give parameters for how much they can hydrate and how long they should stay outside. And then once somebody starts feeling some of these more mild symptoms like nausea or just not feeling well or headaches, start hydrating and get someplace cooler so you don't continue to progress along the spectrum to heat stroke because that is truly an emergency. We've been talking about safe practices during these hot temperatures with Mayo Clinic expert, Dr. Neha Rocker. Thank you so much, Neha, for your expertise. Thank you so much for having me on. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please consider subscribing. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar and stay healthy and thank you for the privilege of your time. Thank you.